Investment products are not FDIC-insured, not a bank guarantee, and may lose value. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon and welcome to the Eye on the Market 2019 Outlook podcast. This is Michael Sembolos. Thank you for podcasting in. Um, the most prescient thing that we ended up writing in 2018 was in October when we observed that in a lot of business cycles, asset prices tend to peak before the economy does and before profits do. Uh, and I think that's what turned out happening. I mean, while a lot of us expect profits growth and GDP growth to continue in 2019, uh, I think in September of 2018, we probably hit peak asset prices for the cycle for stocks and corporate bonds and commercial real estate. And uh, now that we've had this correction, we need to take a fresh look. Uh, a lot of the valuations across the world, which were well above median and some in the U.S. and Europe, which were in the 90th percentile of their history a few months ago, have fallen, some close or a little below median. Um, that said, the unresolved trade issues and the move by the Trump administration away from its 2017 market-friendly policies, I think, will cap the post-correction rebound in 2019. So all things considered, it looks like a volatile, positive single-digit year for diversified portfolios in 2019 after diversified stock bond mixes generated negative returns this year, anywhere from negative 7 to negative 4%. Uh, the outlook this year is composed of four segments. There's an executive summary. Uh, there is a section on the U.S. Uh, we've got a section on non-U.S. markets that takes a very close-up look at some of the more disappointing data out of Europe and China. And then lastly, we have a section on some recollections on the financial crisis, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. The focus of the executive summary is on... Uh, the theme of the cover is this thing we call the decline of Western centralization, uh, and referring to the decline of the central banks as, as tailwinds in financial markets. And the very first chart of our document, I think, is the most important one, which is for the first time in 20 years, uh, financial assets are going to have to be priced solely on demand from institutional and individual investors without help from developed market central banks and without help from emerging market central banks. Uh, both of whom are, are reducing their interventions in markets for different reasons. The first, because they don't need to because of rising wages and shrinking excess capacity, and with respect to emerging market central banks, because they can't afford it based on falling commodity prices uh, and capital outflows. So we take a close look at what this decline looks like, and, and the reason that the withdrawal of central bank support is so important is it's now taking place at a time when the global economy is rolling over. Global earnings revisions have moved into negative territory. Uh, the world is still expanding, but a fewer number of countries are growing above trend. Uh, and global growth last year, if it was, let's say, three and three quarters to four percent, now looks like it's three percent. It's only one percent off the top, but in a lot of places, that one percent extra growth is what was yielding uh, above trend profits growth and justified for a time the extremely high equity valuations that we were seeing in a lot of different places in the world. One of the themes we've been hitting on for the last year or so is that when the real return on cash in the U.S. becomes positive uh, for the first time in a decade, which it looks like it's now poised to do early next year, we're going to continue to see rotations out of financial assets 
uh, into cash. Uh, and uh, we're already starting to see that. And assets that investors never really meant to hold for the long haul uh, are going to get sold, whether in equity or fixed income. And the, some, of the, some of the outflows from U.S. active equity mutual funds in mid-December were some of the largest on record. And just to highlight the degree to which people own assets they didn't mean to, to hold for the long haul, just think about what the ECB, the European Central Bank, has done to people over the last few years. They have bought more sovereign and corporate bonds than were issued in Europe. Just think about that for a minute. Uh, and and some of the, one of the crazy consequences of that, which we show in here, which I still don't believe as I'm looking at it, is there was a time a little over a year ago when almost all of the Italian high-yield bonds in existence traded at tighter yields than U.S. Treasuries did, which is, is kind of absurd. So the, the financial repression and pricing distortions in the market are, are, is what's being reversed right now rather than any precipitous decline in earnings. I mean, earnings growth is, is projected to come down from where it was. 25% uh, or so in the U.S. last year it was supposed to be 8 to 10% in 2019. Now maybe it's 5%. But the collapse in multiples uh, that we've seen in the U.S. and the emerging markets in Europe and Japan, that's not necessarily just about the decline in, in earnings revisions. It's also about a lot of the issues related to the trade war and to the administration, the U.S. administration more specifically. Um, and we have a two-page section in the executive summary uh, that focuses specifically on just how d different the Trump administration is for investors in 2018 and probably 2019 than it was in 2017. Because instead of getting the deregulation and tax cuts of the Reagan administration and the pro-business court appointments of the Bush administration, we're ending up with the policies from Andrew Jackson, Herbert Hoover, JFK, and Nixon uh, with respect to deportations, attacks on individual companies, attacks on the independence of the Federal Reserve, uh, attempts to re-engineer the economy, deportation, anti-globalization, loyalty-based political patronage, and the rest. And, and um, the reports that the president was uh, asking about firing the Federal Reserve chairman were particularly troubling. Uh, the United States is the world's reserve currency uh, and uh, investors have gotten used to, since 1913, to the independence of the Federal Reserve and, and Nixon, um, which is another interesting parallel with the Trump administration, is the, is the only other one to, to seriously tinker with the independence of the Federal Reserve. Nixon threatened to dilute uh, Arthur Burns' voting powers by uh, adding more members to the board that would vote the way Nixon wanted. Uh, so the, the Trump administration's move away from its market-friendly policies is is playing a big role here. And I think the biggest binary issue for investors in 2019 is the resolution to this whole concept of the trade war. Uh, if the U.S. stops where it is uh, with the tariffs uh, so far imposed on Chinese goods uh, and steel and aluminum and washing machines and things like that, the tariff rollback is maybe 15 or 20 years worth of tariff uh, 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 declines. Um, if all of the tariffs that Trump has mentioned on China and European auto and Japanese auto imports and parts imports were imposed, it would take the tariff level back to where it was before the Second World War and would represent essentially a rollback of 50 to 60 years worth of globalization. So that is the single biggest issue for investors uh, in, in 2019, in my view, and it's, uh, it's unclear how an increasingly isolated presidency is going to deal with it.
Now, when the market was down around, when the U.S. market was down around 20% in the last week of December, we sent a note to a lot of our clients to indicate that we thought that that uh, things had gotten uh, very oversold uh, as a function when we looked at things like some of the short interest in the market, um, which which looked a little bit like what had happened in 2016. And since a lot of the valuations, which were uh, uh, close to the highest in history a few months before, were then below uh, median. And um, the other thing that we talked through was the fact that there have been five big mega collapses since the late 1960s and uh, that we didn't think that this episode was going to turn into one of those 30 to 50 percent market declines uh, and we cited three reasons for doing that and and these are things that we reviewed this year in the executive summary uh, the first is the decline in the big global current account imbalances between countries where you've got some countries with giant surpluses and some countries with giant deficits and um, when economic growth changes and you get some of those capital outflows, they can be very destabilizing, and that was a big problem in 2008. Uh, we also uh, highlight the pretty dramatic improvement in the capitalization and liquidity of the financial system. Another thing that's changed a lot since 2008, the size of the derivatives market has shrunk by uh, more than half since then. Um, shadow banking is now back to 2000 levels, et cetera, et cetera. And so the global financial system strikes us as being in, in much better shape than it was a decade ago. And then there's the technical issue of the fact that over the last three years, uh, global equity supply hasn't really grown at all, and in the U.S. it's been declining. Um, function of more companies staying private, slower IPO calendar, M&A activity, the bottom line is that the stock of investable equities has been shrinking, and that doesn't, that doesn't prevent um, bear markets and, and, and market declines from taking place. What it does do is put the market in a technical position where it rebounds more quickly uh, as institutional investors typically are the ones that uh, are going to rebalance after a, a large decline. So those are the three guardrails that we see against the kind of 30 to 50 percent declines that took place in the past. Um, and uh, we walk through in the piece some of the asset classes that look to be very aggressively oversold whether it's tech or banks that are trading at some of the lowest multiples relative to the market in their history. Um, and then in particular, things like metals and mining and emerging markets are trading at extremely low valuations. Some of the big large cap U.S. and Chinese exporters are trading at 10 times earnings. And again, it, it highlights the fact that the biggest binary issue facing investors in 2019 is how the trade war is resolved. I would say that after uh, the declines that took place in late December, investors are being paid to take risk on the resolution of those things more than they had been in the past. Um, I'm not going to venture any kind of a guess in terms of what the administration may or may not do. This is an administration that has um, a turnover rate equal to the prior four presidents combined, uh, and I think it's a, fool's, uh, it's a fool's game to try to predict what political, economic, or social motivations they may have for their policies. Uh, I just will say that um, even with the unpredictability of what may happen in this trade war, um, investors are being compensated more than they had been for taking risks around it. Uh, the worst outcome is, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, tariffs on all Chinese imports and Japanese and, US and um, European auto imports, uh, which would be uh, almost certainly a very, very, very market negative event. If I could, I'd like to just focus for a minute on this whole question of deportations of undocumented workers. 
which is another risk for the U.S. in ways that you might uh, not apparently see. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion about things related to border security and what should be done about it, uh, whether we should have merit-based immigration or needs-based immigration. Those are all discussions that are worth having. The one thing that occurs to me is that the, the current policy is taking place at a time of full employment and very large job shortages in U.S. construction, uh, and that you've got 300,000 workers in the U.S. Uh, under the Temporary Protected Status Worker Program uh, that may be deported, a lot of whom are working on the rebuilding projects in California from the wildfires and in Texas and in Florida. Um, and we are already seeing a very large wage increases. So to some extent, the Trump administration is working against its own self-interest because job shortages and rising wages are part of what's putting pressure on the Fed chairman to raise rates in the first place. And so um, I'm not even sure that the administration understands the connection between some of its policies and what some of its stated objectives are. Uh, in any case, the, the eye on the market outlook this year is laid out, as I mentioned, in four sections. There's the executive summary. Uh, we take a look at the U.S. A lot of the good news on the economy is apparent in terms of business surveys, retail spending, and everything related to consumer. Uh, even so, um, we see a drag coming from rising interest rates and the fading effect of tax cuts. And it looks like growth is going to decline from maybe three and a half to two and two and a quarter or so by the end of 2019. Uh, we take a close look at issues around tariffs, household debt, corporate debt, valuations, asset classes that look oversold, and then concerns about a rush for the exits and the illiquidity in the credit markets resulting from things like the Volcker rule and changes in Fed policy. As it relates to the non-U.S. markets, that's where some of the bigger disappointments have been. And um, uh, I've been a little bit of a broken record on, on my lack of optimism in relative terms for Europe. Um, uh, I've become a little bit of a broken record. As I said, another year in 2018 during which the U.S. outperformed uh, Europe and Japan. And an equity overweight to the U.S. over those two regions has generated positive returns in almost every period since I joined J.P. Morgan 31 years ago. Um, and... 2018 may, in fact, be remembered as the year when the ECB was no longer able to offset the economic shackles of the euro on France and Italy, uh, both of which are headed back to around 1% growth. Now, we've also got a section in the outlook on Brexit, and I think the most important thing to understand is that what's been agreed to is just a roadmap for future discussions, a lot of which haven't been finalized yet. But at this point, our belief is that a second, a second referendum is not the most likely outcome, repeatedly not the most likely outcome. Uh, and then we take a close look at what's going on in China with a focus on some of the issues around the trade war, because we may get uh, either some kind of a deal, which would be enormously positive for global risky assets, or uh, not a deal, in which case we might also be facing a large decline in the Chinese currency um, as the government tries to offset the impact of some of the tariffs. So more evidence of the binary nature of the uh, of the disagreements. And then there's a section in here on what the U.S. is asking for compared to what China has offered so far. Uh, and we show how uh, expectations for future output have declined more than current output, uh, which is, again, another sign of, of the market's uh, fairly dour outlook for the trade war. Uh, and if we do get a better outcome, uh, there are a lot of risk assets around the world that would do much better, and in particular emerging markets, which trade 
at a substantial discount to both the U.S. and to Europe. We conclude with a section on the financial crisis. And the reason I put this in here is because I'm always fascinated to hear uh, what people think about uh, when they read retrospectives on it. And one of the things that we've done is dig back through the archives uh, in terms of things we wrote along the years after the financial crisis. And anybody trying to understand it should start with the banks for sure, but not end there. And one of the thing, some of the things we review is uh, some of the underappreciated crisis points, whether it was the hijacking of Fannie and Freddie balance sheets by government policy, uh, the impact of broker-dealer deregulation, and, and we take a close look at the fact that the deregulation of the broker-dealers might actually have played even a bigger role than anything that happened with banks. Uh, we look at the implosion of the bond reinsurers and the outsized contributions of individual bank and brokerage firms to systemic risk at the time. All of these things, I think, are really important uh, footnotes to history uh, as, as we think about... Um, uh, in retrospect, what happened uh, and what has changed since 2008. So um, happy to uh, talk with some of you in more detail. I look forward to meeting many of you in my travels in 2019. If you have any questions on uh, the outlook, anything that's in there, please contact your integrated teams. We're happy to answer them. Uh, and to summarize again, it looks like a positive year in 2019, but one that is volatile uh, with, with returns that are in the low single digits on diversified portfolios for all of the reasons that we've mentioned in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, a member of FINRA. Views may not be suitable for all investors, and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com disclaimer eotm.